Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference Podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. So uh, last year, um, as people are getting settled in, last year I was talking to James DeCoker and I told him that... um, that I really think that my long hair was a, a benefit because it kept all the fundamental Baptist pastors from asking me to preach it stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and so I cut it, and it may have been the, the biggest mistake I've ever made in ministry. So, so now they've, in, they've invited me. <laughs> oh, s- s- says Brett. <laughs> so now, the next year, James asks me to come speak at this. So I'm like, great. Shot myself in the foot. Um, so yesterday, uh, we were talking about, you know, we're, we are talking about pervasive disi- discipleship, which is this idea that discipleship becomes a part of ev- everything that we do all the time. And that it propels us forward, it's, it's integrated into our vision and, and the way that we think about every aspect of ministry. Uh, and specifically, we talked about having a prevailing discipleship in our churches yesterday. And uh, a prevailing discipleship is a discipleship that, um, that helps us begin to see that, that as discipleship gains ground within the context of our body... Uh, that there are a lot of things that we need to consider in order to keep it, keep it sustainable. And we want to make sure that generation after generation is uh, entrusted with the work of discipleship, that they see it, that they, they get it, that they understand it. And so we kind of introduced you to the idea, the general idea of, of what it means to, to have pervasive discipleship in your churches um, today I want to begin by, before we get into today's topic, I want to begin by pointing out something about discipleship uh, from the Gospels. So the, the term disciple or disciples peer, appears 230 times in the Gospels, okay? And in, and in the Gospels it's used with a great deal of, of exclusivity, that term. Uh, when it's used, it's generally, you know, the majority of the time, uh, referring to the, the 12, okay? And so when the term disciple or disciples is used, it's often in reference to just that, those 12 men that Jesus Christ was giving his life to. And uh, so he reserved this term for, for those men who were obeying his words and, and following him as their master. And Christ says very unique things to people that he calls disciples, okay? He has very specific unique things that he's giving to them that he's not giving to anyone else that's, that's following him around. All right? And he says things like this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, he says, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. All right? So he's teaching them authority in the context of a discipleship relationship. Those are unique words that he was giving to his twelve. In Matthew 8:22, he says, it says, "But Jesus said unto him, "Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead." Tough words for a unique group of individuals. This is what disciples look like: let the dead bury the dead. If you're going to follow me, follow me now. Let the dead take care of themselves. Pretty tough, tough words. Matthew 16:24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Right? These, are, these are prophetic, foreshadowing words of the cross to come. But he's letting them know in advance that, look, uh, the Roman crucifixion, that needs to be a reality in your spiritual life. Right? You, need to be, you need to be dying to self and following after me, obeying my words. John fourteen fifteen says, If ye love me, keep my commandments. That's tough. Like, hey, if you really love me, do everything I say. You know, that doesn't work in most, in most of the world, right? If your boss says that to you, you, you should be concerned about that. 
right? But that, those are tough words for a unique group of individuals, 12 men who'd committed everything to follow him, who gave up their jobs, gave up their professions, turned away from their families in order to follow after the Messiah, a big deal. He had high expectations for their lives, and they responded, not perfectly, but in obedience. And in time, he puts the very hardest request that he could possibly put on anybody, and he asks them to take the gospel to the entire world. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. Amen. So we, here we have 11 disciples asked to do something so incredible that they couldn't even get their heads around it. They could hardly understand what was being asked of them. But after 40 days of teaching of the kingdom of God, Jesus ascends to heaven and we open up to a new scene with new faces. And so what we see here is something's changing. The point of, of, of Christ's ascension, something changes that's drastically important to who we are and has, it has great relevance to what we're talking about today. In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, it says, they returned, they, uh, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And that when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. These all uh, continued with one accord. So we see, we see the eleven. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in, the, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, now here we have an important point, the number of names together were about 120. So he stands up before the disciples, and the disciples are no longer just the 11. The disciples are now 120 individuals packed into an upper room awaiting the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And what we discover as we read Acts is that all that was taught to the 12 disciples, all that was instructed to them, all that they had experienced in walking with Jesus Christ, must now be overlaid to a larger group of individuals. All of the commands, all of the requests, all the difficulty, the Great Commission, all of it was in, in, intended to be transferred and overlaid on top of a larger group of individuals. Here we find 120. By the end of Acts chapter 2, it's over 3,000. And by the time we get to Antioch, Discipleship had been fully integrated into the church as a fact of Christian life. It was baked into the church culture. And discipleship had become perpetual discipleship. It had become perpetual. It had momentum. It was a fact of what they were doing. What the twelve had done was now what everyone was to do. That was the life that they were to live. And so discipleship had become perpetual. It hadn't just had victory in the context of a small congregation, but it was beginning to get a foothold on a larger community and a larger group. And so as our discipleship ministries begin to expand, what we'll realize is that it actually becomes very difficult to have the same level, level of intention with a larger group of people. It's, it's more difficult than it was with a smaller group of people. When churches are small, right, it's easier to make the investment. When your discipleship ministry is small, it's easier to make that investment. But as it grows and as it continues to take root and it becomes pervasive, keeping it perpetual and moving forward is not always an easy thing to do. And so today we're going to talk about ways in which we can, um, we can commit to that kind of discipleship. So let's pray and then we'll begin talking about establishing a perpetual discipleship. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank, we thank you for all of the example uh, that you've given us in Scripture about discipleship. And we have these passages that we hold on to as like, as like key passages for discipleship. But the truth is, a, uh, discipleship, just like evangelism, was assumed upon the church. And every page of the New Testament 
is a work of discipleship. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us today. Um, Lord, I pray that then in my storytelling and in the strategies that I convey, Lord, um, um, I pray that, that they would be presented with humility, knowing that Midtown Baptist Temple does not have everything figured out and that I am, I am just a man and um, I've just learned a few things and some of it's helpful and some of it might not be. But Lord, I pray that the pastors and leaders that are with us here today, that they would be able to walk away with, with tangible keys to ministry, strategies that they can use um, that would help uh, promote a discipleship that has momentum and, uh, and where leaders are being raised up. And, and that, Lord, ultimately we can all be churches that are planting churches all over the world. That's what we desire is to be used that way. So, so help us, God. Um, Lord, provoke us, teach us, and be our friend today in your word. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so let's start with our definition. A perpetual discipleship is a discipleship that is culturally integrated into the behavior and activity of every church member. A perpetual discipleship is a discipleship that is culturally integrated into the behavior and activity of every church member. In other, in other words, we have a ministry that assumes discipleship is happening all the time, everywhere, in every context. And what we mean is that church, your church has gone from being just a church where discipleship is a highly conscious and deliberate agenda to become a subconscious yet deliberate lifestyle. And I'll say that again, is, is that in the early years of discipleship and, and in the intention of, of a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship, that's a highly conscious uh, activity. And it's deliberate in its agenda. It's very agenda-oriented. It's very focused. That, that investment is very focused, and it's highly conscious. But as time goes on, what we want is we want discipleship to be a subconscious activity while still remaining deliberate, but we want it to go from being just an agenda to being a lifestyle of what we're doing. It's in everything we do. The church in Antioch didn't just do discipleship. They lived it. They lived it. It was what they did. It was assumed. But I, I worry that today when, we, when we're talking about a, a subject like this, the truth is I don't think that's very common among discipleship churches. Right? I think that we've still relegated our discipleship ministries to being this highly conscious, agenda-oriented, programmatic thing that we do, and it's not always integrated into the lifestyle of our body. And so that's, that's what I think we, we need to talk about today. Why is that so difficult? Because we're not, always, um, we're not actually making disciples if we're not giving away ministry, and giving away ministry is very difficult for people to do. Once we have our hooks into a ministry, and we're perceived as the leader of that thing, it's very difficult for us to let go of it. We have a lot of pets in ministry, things that we, we love to stroke, that, 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 that ultimately feed our ego. We don't even know what's happening. We, know we believe we're serving the Lord, but we hold on so tightly to ministries. Maybe we, maybe we conceived that ministry. Right? Maybe we invented that thing and we watched it cultivate and now it's, it's grown and, and, we, and we sink our hooks into it. And all the while, we are preventing people from actually getting the ministry-oriented discipleship that they need. We have to learn to give away ministry. And so let's start there. What's the motivation for giving away ministry? If discipleship is prevailing in our churches, then we will turn around and one day we will go from 12 to 120, just like we see happening in, in scripture one day you know maybe you planted a church maybe you're you know maybe you're dan Reno. five years ago planted a church started with about 20 people turns around and now he's got 200 disciples in his church right and that those times are really critical right the development of a thing is very very critical and and you turn around and suddenly you see that god's actually doing all the things that he promised to you that he would do and it's exciting but we have to determine up front that we will need to make room for disciples to grow. And we struggle with this because when the four goals of discipleship are ineffectual, we are, we're content with just plugging a person into a ministry activity and convincing ourselves that they're doing ministry. Okay? 
So the, 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 the four goals, we've got them. They're in front of us. We know. We, we rehearse them. We talk about it. Then what we do is we plug that person into ministry, but it's just an activity. Again, it's just as sterile as the sterile laboratory of the one-on-one discipleship relationship. We say we want the, them to get their hands dirty, but when they show up, that, that ministry remains a very sterile working environment, and they're never really allowed to own it at the level that it needs to be owned. And that's what people need, is they need to be able to own ministry. This is a hurdle for leadership because we get so set in our way, we struggle with the bigger picture in mind. We lose sight of the bigger Remember that scalable vision that we talked about yesterday, having that big vision and seeing afar off. We struggle with doing that. But we have to design a discipleship that assumes something bigger than our family and our four walls. We have to set our sights higher. And the thing that's helped me personally with this concept is, um, is I, I've learned that I have to assume this is the way I work. This is the way I function in ministry. You might have to see it a different way. This is the way I, the way I think. I assume that every single person in the college and young adult ministry will be a part of a church plant. So I start with that assumption. That's, the, again, that, that big vision thinking, right? Thinking big. And so every single member of Kaya, in my mind, will one day be a part of a church plant. Now, I know that that's probably not true. I know a, a large number of those people will remain with us at MBT, and they will plug in there, and they'll continue to invest into their old age. They'll, they'll raise their families there, and they'll help that work continue to thrive, and we need that. We need that, okay? So I know that that's the reality. But for me, I, I think that I know that I am going to, to raise up a generation of leaders that's appropriate for the work, if I raise them in such a way that the, st- the stakes are incredibly high, and if I infer upon my ministry that every single one of those people are going to have to have the maturity of a church planner, I think that's the safest appro- approach to discipleship. And I am obligated, if I think that way, I'm obligated to prepare them to own the ministry at that level. And so if you've ever been a part of a church plant, perhaps Dan will talk about this more tomorrow, if you've ever been a part of a church plant, you go from being the type of person that has one ministry activity at your home church, but you go out and you be a part of that church plant, suddenly you're doing everything. You're cleaning, you're running AV, you're teaching, you're discipling, you're evangelizing. And so what was, was, was a small work and activity at your home church, now you're doing everything. And in order to be prepared for that, you need to make sure that the individuals that are in your church right now are getting their hands as dirty as possible. Do they see the weaknesses of every person in the church? Now, it's a, there's stages to that, right? Inviting them in behind the veil to see how messy ministry can really be. But if we keep them in that romantic, I do my ministry activity, I'm a, I'm a good lemming, okay? And, they, and, and ministry remains mechanical and sterile, they will never be prepared for the difficulty of leadership ahead of them. And if we're going to dream big and we're going to have big vision, then it then we must infer on every individual in our church that they're going to be a part of something way bigger than, than their small little world right now. I mean, we think that way about our children, don't we? When we're raising up our children, we, we dream big for them. And we pay very close to attention to their personalities, their weaknesses. We lay in bed at night and think about what they're going to be like as adults, what kind of person that they'll need to marry one day. And then what we do is we, again, we design backwards. We think about all the end goals and what we want for that child. So based on that big vision, we work our way backwards and we say to ourselves, well, what are all the things I need to do to prepare them? I mean, I see this weakness in their life. So what do I need to put into their life that would shape them and mold them the direction that they need to go that would help correct? And if we think that way with our children, why wouldn't we think that way about the flock? So the, the fact that, that some people will go and be a part of a church plant, for me, is enough justification to make sure that everyone is prepared for that work in my ministry. So here's the concept of, of giving away ministry, okay? The good news for all of us is that giving away ministry is a very natural thing to do as a byproduct 
of making disciples. And this is what I mean by that. Here's, here's kind of the stages of how this might work. If a church is evangelizing and discipling, then the church is growing, right? It'll be growing. The numbers of individuals in your church will grow. As the church grows, the needs grow. More children, more people, more bodies. There's needs. There's, there's new needs that are being invited into the body. As the needs grow, then ministry must expand to meet those needs. It has to. Meeting those needs means more ministry responsibilities for more church members. See how organic that is? So as more people come into the body, then there will be more responsibilities that need to be filled. As people minister, leaders emerge. So as they begin doing the work of ministry, you start recognizing that leaders are emerging in the context of ministry, and we train them, and we send them to plant churches. As churches are planted, the base church remains healthy and fine because the ministry is flexible, and there are always disciples left behind to fill the voids, right? So one of the things that we, we saw happen, again, Midtown is still very new at this, all right? But we are beginning to plant churches. By, by God's grace and, and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are beginning to plant churches. And, and, it, and our hope is to plant churches every year for the rest of our life. Like, wouldn't that be wonderful? But that seems like a very unsustainable thing, though, in your mind, because you're like, you're depleting the body. It seems hard. Like, if we planted a church every single year and 15 to 20 people went out to be a part of that work, how do we sustain that? Well, by God's grace, by God's grace, you sustain that. So, so here's, here's an example, and I know that Dan tells stories like this, but so Dan took a group of about 25 people with him. Is that right, 25, almost-ish? Okay, he's not, like, he doesn't know the number. He's like, I'm not, I can't remember. A little lower, 20? It, okay, Dan went with three people. That has actually helped my story. So, so Dan took a, a group of, 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 of about 20, 25 people with him. And a lot of those were leaders. They were tithers. Okay? These were people that were involved in ministry. And so the moment that they left meant that there was void in the ministry. And you think, well, how is this sustainable? How do you keep doing this? How do we meet the needs? Oh, you do. You do. Because those voids mean, mean room, space. For more people who are on the cusp, who are waiting, they're waiting for the moment where they can come in and fill that void. And we didn't miss a beat, and our church grew so fast. It was, we hurt, we, okay, I want to make sure I say this, we hurt that Dan left. But listen, we thrived that Dan left. You understand? So while we may be hurt emotionally because we love those individuals, Dan, will you shut up? I'm doing something up here. <laughs> this wasn't... This wasn't an invitation for you to take over. Okay? I'm doing something. Okay. So here, so the point is that it hurt emotionally. I mean, Dan's my best friend. It hurt. It hurt. Can you tell that we're best friends? It hurt that he left emotionally. But it actually benefited the ministry of our church to prune off those that could be fruitful and plant them somewhere else. And what it did is it left room. But listen to me, if we don't think that way, how is that possible? If we're always concerned about our own rear end, we will never get anything done. If we're busy uh, uh, treating our ministry like a pet, we'll never let anyone go. Oh, but such and such is so good at children's ministry. How could, we ever, how could we ever cut them loose to do this thing that's, they're growing into this other position? I know, but we can't let them go. When we, and we hoard up and we store up ministers and, we, and we, we lock them away and we keep everything safe because things are going good. For once, things are going good in this ministry. And by doing that, we don't make room for more ministers and we don't trust God for something bigger than ourselves. We have to change the way that we think, and we have to know that God is in the business of meeting every need. In every season, in every moment, he's in the business of meeting those needs. So while it, none of this seems easy, that's not the point. 
the, the, the point is, is that, we're, that we're to live the Great Commission. And we have to design a ministry that supports a big vision. And we do that by thinking in terms of a perpetual form of discipleship. So let's talk about the context of three parts of church life and how these can become supportive of discipleship. And the first thing is discipleship and service ministry. All right? How do we make our service ministries discipleship? And by service ministry, we mean ministry that supports the worship and teaching of God's Word when the body uh, gathers together. Right? When the body comes together on Sundays or Tuesdays or Wednesday nights or whatever it is, the service ministries are the ministries that support that work so that it can happen distraction-free and so that the teaching of God's Word can take place. And these responsibilities often include things like AV and streaming and hospitality and security, children's ministry, nursery, baptism teams, worship teams, etc. And every church has a list of regular ministries the young disciples are going to get plugged into. And the question for us is how can each of these areas of ministry serve a greater purpose than making sure that cars aren't broken into, right? I mean, if the security team's job is just to make sure that cars aren't broken into, then I would say that they're failing. And if children's ministry workers are only serving to make sure that the kids have a place to be for a couple of hours, and they think in terms of babysitting, then they're actually failing at what God's given them to do. See, the beauty of ministry is that these service ministries are active and they have space for relationships. You build relationships in the context of these ministries, which means that, that, that there's room for modeling ministry and discipleship. There's, there's room for the leaders to exemplify what it means to follow Christ. There is room for, for people to learn administrative gifts and, and structure and organization. And there is room for people to grow up in their faith by following along in the context of what we would refer to as just gateway ministry. But we have to treat it that way. We have to design it that way. So key point number one is discipleship in the context of ministry is about modeling the mission. It's broken free from just the laboratory of the one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship. Now things are real. Now I've got a responsibility. Now I've got something to do that activates my faith. All these new things that I'm learning to believe and follow after. Now I've got some sort of space and environment to let those things play out. But I need someone to model it for me. I need someone to show me what it looks like to live out that mission. I need that. So how do we model the mission? Let's talk about modeling the mission. How do we model it? When someone shows up in our ministry to serve, we always begin by teaching them the who, what, where, when, and why of the ministry. Okay? The who, what, where, and when, okay, though that first part, the who, what, where, and when are necessary for teaching young disciples how to be faithful with the responsibilities of ministry. This is the whole Luke 16 principle, Right? All right, we have to show these ministers that show up in children's ministry or the AV ministry what it looks like to be faithful to the physical aspects of the ministry, the responsibilities. Okay, so you want to talk to them about, okay, you need to show up at this time. All right, you need to be here at 8.30 because that's when we start doing such and such. And you, you, you hold them accountable to that. Are you prepared? Okay, I need you to be prepared in this way, okay, when you come to serve, this is how I need you to be prepared. You need to be dressed this way. You need to act this way. You need to be studied this way. Every ministry is different. All right? These are the ways in which you get prepared for this ministry. Let me show you how to do that. Are you focused? Are you focused? Did, did you get plenty of sleep the night before you came to, to church? Are you focused? Are you prepared? Did you get your cup of coffee? Did you make sure everything get done, get, got done? All the boxes got checked. Are you focused? Are you ready to roll? You know, one of the things I watch in the children's ministry is that like the newer, the newer, it's, it's often the Kaya people. It's like the, the, the 19, 20, 21 year olds. They're doing ministry for the first time. And you watch and they treat, they treat ministry like they treat everything else in their life. Right? They're just, they're not incredibly responsible. Uh, they don't always have the best hygiene. Uh, they, they're just not always ready. And so they show up to ministry a little bit late. 
right? You can see the children's ministry lights come on in the classroom, and it's like, oh, yeah, they're a little late, you know. But it's so-and-so, and that doesn't surprise me, you know. And, and, and so they're learning, and they need someone to model for them and show them the who, what, where, and when of ministry. It's critical, because if ministries aren't run well, then ministries, ministries won't do the things that we need them to do. And so we have to teach our ministers the very practical, physical aspects of AV and children's ministry and all these types of things. But here's the deal. It can't, it can't remain there. It, it can't stay there. We can't just disciple the business of ministry. We have to also disciple the purpose of ministry. We're responsible for, responsible for also teaching the why. We want every minister to understand the reason that they serve. And it's not just to be approved of. It's not just to be seen. It's not just to meet that four goal as a responsibility to the lessons. It's to contribute to the work of the Great Commission. And that, that has to be caught. Not to, it's not taught. It has to be caught. What we're talking about here is felt leadership. This is leadership of burden. And the only way for disciples to learn this is by witnessing the heart of other leaders around them. So if it's always about the business of the ministry, and that's all we're discipling into people, then they'll actually never own the burden for themselves. It'll always be a ministry, not my ministry. And there has to come a point where it's not just a place where they serve. It's part of the lifestyle of who they are. That they own children's ministry at that level. That they own AV at that level. This belongs to me. I own it. And that's caught. That's caught. It's not taught. You know, you could teach someone when to show up on time. But they have to witness your love and your passion for ministry. In order, in order to own the vision of ministry. We want it to belong to them. And this is why ministry leaders should have regular meetings with their teams. This is why we have to meet. This allows them to not only teach best practices, but to remind their team of the reasons why they serve. And so I'm gonna, I want to use our children's ministry as an example for this. I interviewed uh, um, one of the leaders on the children's ministry team in advance of coming here. And I just want to give you an example of how this happens in our children's ministry. So Pastor Chris Best, he's the pastor over our children's ministry at Midtown. Okay? Now he meets with his associate leaders. And so his son, Andrew Best, and a man named Gordon Kimball also serve as associate leaders in that ministry. Gordon is very gifted at management. He's an administrator by nature. He's an architect by profession. He's a man that likes to stay between the lines. Okay? And so he's great with organization and developing procedures. Andrew, Chris's son, is a heart guy. Okay, he's a, he's a teacher and he's a classroom guy by nature. Kids are excited to be around him. They love him. He's passionate about what he does. He's a visionary. He thinks big. And so between the three of them, they make a really great team. Now, Chris meets with those guys via Zoom once a month to just talk about some of the things that they're seeing in ministry. And they discuss like weaknesses in the ministry or, or things that aren't getting done. Or, and they have those conversations. And then from there, they have a group of 10 leaders in their ministry that oversee different things like fourth and fifth grade class or third grade class or kindergartners or toddlers. And, and those leaders meet with them once a month to rehearse in an organized way all the things that they're seeing and the things in the areas that they need to grow in. And so they've met with those 10 leaders. They need to meet with those leaders. That's kind of more inside the circle meeting. And they have those conversations. And, they, and here's the beautiful thing. With each level, you, the closer you get to the, the circle, the more you can pull back the veil on the reality of what's going on because people are ready, right? They, at that point, they see the vision, and you can be more honest with them and open. And so with those 10 leaders, they're kind of open. Now, from there, they have a once-a-month meeting with the 100 children's workers that they have. It's a group of 100. I didn't even know that. Like in my mind, I was like, oh yeah, we've got, we, you know, we've got quite a few. But to hear 100 children's workers, that's a lot of people to envision, isn't it? 
And so they meet with them once a month. And so here's the, here's the construct of their meeting. And I think it needs to be I think it needs to be the agenda of every every kind of ministry meeting that exists in our churches. These are the things that they cover. First, they cover the purpose. They cover the purpose. They take time to instruct on biblical principles. And so Pastor Chris will step up in front of the large group and he'll spend 10 or 15 minutes giving some sort of devotional teaching and he'll remind them of why they're doing what they're doing. Because we need that. We need that for vision. And then the next thing that they'll do is they'll talk about process. And they'll invite Gordon Kimball will come up because he's the guy that's good at that. He's good at management. He's good at, he's good at you know, checking all those boxes. And he'll talk about the importance of some sort of administrative aspect of the ministry. Like, hey, guys, let's not forget that this thing goes here and we want to clean up this way. You know, I've noticed over the last few weeks that things haven't been cleaned up the way they need to be cleaned up in such and such areas of ministry. Or, or remember, don't forget to fill out this form or, or whatever it is, right? And he's talking about that. He's reminding them of those things. So they're talking about pro, uh, process. And then from there, they invite Andrew in. And Andrew's the heart guy. And he wants to talk about best practices in the classrooms. And he's talking about when the rubber meets the road, this is what needs to be conveyed. And so he's talking about implementation and best practice, and he's sharing his heart. And they're talking about practice. And so based on these meetings, the leaders of the classes, they know what their expectations are. They know what the expectations are. And they can hold one another accountable to minister the way that they ought. And so within the context of the classrooms themselves, you have leaders over, say, the fourth and fifth grade class. They're constantly reminding all of those new members of why they do what they do. They're reminding them of the purpose. They're reminding them time and time again of the process. They're reminding them time and time again of the practice. And in this way, people are getting the vision. They're not just getting the responsibilities, but they're getting the vision for ministry. And that leads us to this point of vision that I think is, is really, really important. Once someone in your ministry is proven to be faithful in both the physical and spiritual aspects of ministry, then it's time to exercise some liberty by sharing the vision with them. In other words, giving something away. It's our ministry leader's job to express the potential growth for the ministry and how it can better serve the needs of the church. And so what I mean by this is that, that in time, when someone's proven to be faithful, they get invited closer into the circle. And what we need to do is we need to teach them the areas in which the ministry needs to grow, and then we need to give them space to do it. We need to turn them loose, to let them be creative, to, like, to, to let them think up new procedures and plans and purposes and ideas. They have to have space they have to have space in the sandbox to play. They have to have space. And, if we, this is, and I think this is the part that a lot of us struggle with. And we as pastors, I think it's difficult because when we look and we oversee ministry and we see that things are functioning well, we can't always see whether or not, you know, you know Sister Bertha is a pit bull and she doesn't want anyone to, to get into her territory and she's not actually handing off any ministry. We have a hard time seeing that. But it's what has to be promoted. I mean, it has to be part of the culture. It has to, if, if ministry and discipleship is going to be perpetual, we have to instruct in this way and we have to encourage our ministry leaders to actually hand things off. And that's why one of our principles in our ministry is that we're always developing leaders. And what that means for the leaders at the top is that we're always giving away ministry. Like I want... I, every aspect of ministry that I oversee, I want to, I want to be, pre, be prepared at any given moment to just give it over and not have to ever look at it again. I want someone to own it. And so we have to do this. This is part of developing disciples in ministry. Clearly the ministry will, become, or will come uh, with its own constraints, right? There's, every ministry has its own constraints, but within those constraints of the, of the sandbox, people should be allowed to play. And this is where discipleship learns to take risks and allows people to try new things and own the vision at a more intimate level. This is where people f fail. They mess up. They screw up. 
They do things wrong. So either we get in a tizzy about that, or we use it as an opportunity to teach. Either we get all wound up and say, ah, oh, and then you go storm off into the pastor's office and say, Pastor Sam, I'm fed up. This is the third week in a row that Sister So-and-so hasn't put their apron away in the right place. And it's like, I mean, and we deal with it. People, because people are pit bulls over their ministry, they don't know how to give it away. And, and so we want to encourage people to help develop new processes, new curriculum, reorganize spaces in our church, recruit new people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of this is done with leaders in close proximity observing and watching and reminding the disciples of the mission and the heartbeat behind the work. So, I, you know, I tell this story sometimes, but when the church first got planted in Midtown, uh, I was really content with, like, pushing a mop, pushing a broom, uh, being a part of, of the physical work of the church. And, and uh, you know, at age, at age 22, you know, we, the church was still small, and the, and the pickings must have been real slim. But Sam and Chris asked me to oversee and, and lead the uh, middle school and high school ministry, which was a group of about five or six kids at that point. <clears throat> And at the time, I, I, I thought to myself, I'm completely unqualified. I've never worked with kids before. This is before I was a teacher. Uh, you know, I, was, I worked in an office, right? Like, I didn't know anything about kids. And um, I had no vision for it. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I, didn't, I was completely clueless. But, but because Sam wasn't afraid to take a risk on me, because, because he saw something I couldn't see. And he gave me a sandbox to play in. Because of his decision to do that, the entire trajectory of my life changed. I never wanted to be a pastor. I didn't know anything about shepherding. I, I, didn't, I didn't know who I was. My entire identity took form in the context of someone taking a risk on me. And if we don't learn how to do that, we will never see people's potential actualized in ministry. And we will never see those churches planted that we want to see. So it's a big deal. And in the context of ministry, we have to learn how to model servanthood. And so there is a responsibility on leaders to show with their lives what it looks like to lead. Titus 2.7 says, In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of, <clears throat> of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. That ought to be true of our ministry leaders. I mean, if they're going to be good at training up another generation of ministry leaders, then they need to be blameless. They need to have a pattern of good works. Because the next key point is this. Discipleship is more about who you are becoming than what you're doing. Discipleship is more about who you're becoming than what you're doing. And if we want to emphasize people becoming something then that means that we need to model for them servanthood. They need to be able to see our lives. There needs to be some transparency. Because we're not teaching them just to show up on time. There's more to it than that. What this means is that our ministry leaders should be trustworthy to model for young believers what it means to walk with Christ displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Ministry leaders who are proud and set in their ways will be inflexible and they'll, they'll model ungodly leadership. Bad leaders produce bad leaders. That's just how it goes. I mean, you can see it in discipleship too. When someone finishes discipleship with someone that you know that has this like, maybe has a flaw in one area, you see that flaw in the in, in sample, right? Like, you see that. And then it reproduces as the, the byproduct of that. That flaw kind of stays, doesn't it? And you've got to trust the Lord that that's going to get discipled out some other way. I mean, you can't control every weakness, right? That's not the point. The point is, is, that, is that we need leaders that are willing to be in samples, and they're showing not just how to do ministry, but how to be the minister that they need to be. We want that. And so that's, a part of that is accountability. It means that, that 
that ministry needs to be accountable. Ministry leaders should be holding their ministry disciples accountable. When things aren't right, or they observe behavior that's unbecoming of a believer, it's the ministry leader's responsibility to speak into their team, into the individuals in their team. They need to be able to pull someone aside and say, hey, I've seen this thing. This is, this is unbecoming of a believer. And, and so here's, here's what I'm praying needs to change in your life. Here's the area of repentance, or here's the thing, the area in which I need you to grow. We want our leaders to do that. We want, we want them to get involved in each other's lives in this way. They shouldn't, you know, one of the things, and I'm, I'm making this point. Again, I, I think I'm saying things that are probably for a lot of you like, I get it. I already get this. We do this. So, you know, I apologize for that. But one of the things that I've noticed in our ministry at Midtown Baptist Temple is that the leaders in a ministry, say children's ministry or AV, they oftentimes will let sin that they can observe in the ministers go by because they assume it's someone else's responsibility to speak into it. And so you'll have a year go by and none of the pastors know anything, no one knows what's going on, and and, and this leader will see a, 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 a weakness or a sin in, in a minister's life, and they won't speak up and they won't say anything because they don't think it's their place. But the ministers in our ministry, if we want discipleship to, 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 to be perpetual, there's got to be a level of accountability in, in the context of ministry itself. And so this might mean a conversation with someone, or it might mean going to your pastor and saying, hey, pastor, here's this thing that I've seen and I don't know how to address it. I just want to make you aware of it. But that's how accountability works. There has to be open dialogue between pastors and ministry leaders. That's your your blank, by the way. Open dialogue between pastors and ministry leaders over issues of character. It's important. We don't want people who are negligent in their faith to continue to minister. Okay, so here's one of the problems that we run into at our church from time to time is we'll have someone that's involved in ministry, but they're not integrated into the church. And so they only show up to church when it's their week to serve. Have you seen this? So they show up when it's their week to do AV, they'll show up to do security or whatever it is, their responsibility, because it makes them feel good about themselves. You know, it allows them to think that they're still spiritual at some level, and at least, you know, if they're not going to be faithful to follow the Lord, at least they're going to be faithful to this. I, I don't know that... For me personally, if I wasn't going to follow the Lord and be integrated in the church, I would be doing something else. So I can't say I understand these people, but they exist, okay? They exist, and they come and they do their ministry responsibility. And the funny thing is, this will happen for months and months before any pastors are, are aware. Because as a discipleship ministry grows and as churches grow, it's harder to have eyes on everybody all the time. And so you need ministry leaders that are responsible Enough for their ministry to come to you and say, hey, I've noticed that over the last month that so-and-so so showed up to, do, to, to be a part of AV, but I haven't seen them at church the rest of the month. I, I don't know what they're doing, you know? And so I'm just a little bit concerned that they're not actually involved and in, in discipleship's beginning to break down. That's important. We need that kind of transparency because our responsibility is to hold one another accountable because that's a part of discipleship. We have to do that. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is preparing for expansion in ministry. Our, as our ministries grow, we should, we should prepare for that. So here's the key point. Healthy ministries breed or, or produce or generate space for growing leaders. The church grows, and it demands, uh, the demands on the body begin, uh, continue to grow, right? So there's a, there's a strain on the, the body, and that person, someone needs to fill that role. And we've got to make room for them. And so one of the ways that we do that at Midtown, again, this is just what we do. One of the ways that we do that is that we, we have a, a, it's not a policy. It's not a hard, fast rule. But it's a principle that we kind of abide by, that someone serves in ministry once a month, and the other three times a month, they're in a fellowship setting and they're getting fed. Okay, this does a couple things. First of all, it puts the priority on their development and their growth and on fellowship and on accountability. It puts a priority on that. So three times a month, they should be under the preaching of the word undistracted. But then what it also does 
is it leaves those other three weeks open for other people to get involved. And, and so, so, so what happens, and we know this, especially, this is especially true in the beginning of a church work or when churches are small. We have people that ministry and, do ministry and children's ministry, for instance, every single stinking week. And week after week after week after week, sister or brother and so-and-so are doing that thing, and that means that they're not under the preaching of God's Word. And they're not really accountable, and they're not in fellowship, and they're not fully integrated because they're hiding behind a ministry. Now, they're telling themselves that they're doing that because they're, they're meeting a need, and they're, 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 they're responsible, and they're there, they're there to serve, and they, and they want to believe that they're doing it for the right reason. But we as pastors and leaders need to understand that that's dangerous. It's dangerous for them. And we're, we're, by letting them do that, now, again, not policy, uh, you know, when someone, when someone owns a ministry responsibility, sometimes there's reasons that they need to serve more, right? Uh, there's a gap that needs to be filled, and they're going to fill it. Good ministers should do that, but there should be a balance. There needs to be a balance. And the beautiful thing about that, the more important thing than just making sure that people are under the preaching of God's Word, for, for our reasons today, is that it leaves space for other people to come and get involved. Because if they're meeting that need every single week, well, that's, that's not leaving room for anybody else to serve. And so maybe, maybe it's better for there to be a weakness or a void in ministry than having someone, the same person, fill that void every single week because if that void is there, there's something to pray about. We need, someone to, we need God to provide someone to fill that role. And in so doing, you will, you will perpetuate discipleship. We need to leave space for people to get involved. We need to make new roles. We need to be watching as the ministry grows. We need to be delegating new responsibilities. We need to be creative. You know, the, the beautiful thing, so I don't know, maybe this drives Sam crazy, but it's really fun for me. One of the beautiful things about where we're at as a ministry right now is that I get to invent ministries, just make them up, because I see a leader that can fill the need. Okay, so let me give you an example. About four years ago, uh, Mark Trotter mentioned to me that, that he didn't know how to go about publishing his book. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you, dude. I mean, I think we could f- figure something out. But then it hit me like a, like a lightning bolt. There's a young lady in our church who is amazing with editing. And oh, you know what? She's responsible. She's grown in ministry. She's in LFBI, she understands theology, so she, can, so she can see the theology at the same time that she's doing editing work. Living Faith Books is born because Melissa Wharton exists. She's a person in our ministry. I wasn't going to do that. I'm not good with grammar and punctuation. I wasn't going to do that. But I saw a person that could meet that need, so we invented an entirely new ministry. And so we've got two volunteers. We've got a designer, and we've got, we've got a chief editor, Melissa, and I just oversee it as a pastor. And the, and, and the reason today that we have all these wonderful books from Mark Trotter and all these other different leaders, Greg Axe, is because we've got two people that were available, and I could just invent a ministry and plug, plug them in and just say, let's go. And now it's moving. And we have, the beautiful thing about it is as we raise up leaders, we have flexibility to do that. You can say, you know what we need? And then, and then now she's, she's growing in her ability to lead and oversee and delegate, and, and she's becoming a faithful leader. And you know what? She'll make an awesome part of a church plant one day because she's learning, because I gave her a sandbox to play in. So the next thing is this. Discipleship needs to happen in fellowship context, okay? Fellowship context. As discipleship becomes pervasive, then the church begins to grow, you know? And, and so about five years ago, um, I'm sorry, about five years into the church plant in Midtown, we began recognizing that there was a need for more intentional fellowship and touch points, okay? So we had the college and young adult ministry, but we were still small enough where the regular church members, the average adults, were just coming for Sunday services, and then they would leave. They didn't, we didn't have any fellowships. We didn't really have Bible studies at that point. Maybe there was a couple in the church 
but, but, but for the most part, there was no way of organizing people into smaller groups for accountability. We hadn't done that yet. So we started developing what we refer to as fellowships. A lot of people call them Sunday schools. And the very first ones were Life Fellowship. Kenny Morgan leads that. And Living Well, uh, Chris Best leads that. And these classes, over time, have become critical to perpetual discipleship because they provide relationships necessary for friendship and accountability as well as the ministry opportunities that it creates as we reach our community. So, so I want to present to you for a second what our fellowship classes look like. And I want you to also note that, that a lot of what we're learning about the phalanx kind of overlays in the way, the way we approach fellowship classes and Bible studies. And so you'll see that, that actually, if in your church you were to pair small groups or fellowship classes with this work, that that would be an awesome construct for accountability and evangelism. So there, there might be some overlap there, but I'll just present to you what we do, and, and you can take it or leave it. So the first thing is, is the who. We want every member to be a minister, or, a, or I mean, sorry, to be a part of a fellowship, every single person. And that goes back to that three times a month. So they serve somewhere once a month you know, in, in the church. They serve somewhere, but three times a month, they're in a fellowship classroom and in main service getting preaching from Sam. And we want everyone to do that. We push that. We tell people, look, you need to be a part of a fellowship. That's part of our agenda. You need to be a part of a fellowship. And so <clears throat> besides Kaya, besides the college and young adult ministry, the demographics of these classes are intended to be various so that they don't get siloed. Okay, so I'm going to touch a button. Okay, all right. We don't have, what do you even call it? Old people class? I don't know what you call it, right? The golden, a lot of times I use the word golden in the titles of these classes. Golden something or other. We don't have singles ministries. We don't have a singles class that we're just the single people hang out. I mean, we have college and young adult ministry, which is mainly singles. But we don't silo people based on their demographic. And the reason is we want, all, we want as best as possible for all the fellowships to have a nice mixture of different types of people because we want older people to Titus chapter 2. We, wa we want older people speaking into the lives of younger people and discipling them and showing them about life. And, and we, we, want, we want black and white and, 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 and Hispanics to mix and mingle together. You know, despite the fact that we have a Spanish class, the reason that that exists... The reason that the Spanish ministry exists is not because we want to silo the Spanish ministry. It exists practically because lots of people don't know how to speak English. But we have a lot of bilingual Spanish speakers that are actually not in the Spanish ministry. They're a part of other classes because we don't want to silo people. We want, we want these, these classes to be a, 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 a swath of every kind of individual in our church because we believe that's good for fellowship. That's just how we do it. You might have reasons not to do that, okay? We meet every Sunday morning in either the A or the B service, okay? So it's a flip-flop to the worship service. And they spend time in fellowship as well as under teaching. And so, you know, they're already getting preached at for 45 minutes in main service. So a lot of times in our fellowship classes, it is fellowship. We want to emphasize small groups and meeting and, and talking about certain things and panel discussions, and, and, and we want to give space to experiment. Okay, Kenny Morgan's really good at this. All right? He likes to have little breakout sessions and, and do short instructional things, and, and he mixes things up quite a bit. That's we want, we want to do that because we want there to be an emphasis on fellowship. The ministry fellowship leader is responsible, and this is the main thing I want to get to. This, they're responsible for casting a vision for their class on reaching their community and having an evangelical presence. So the primary mechanism for outreach and fellowship then becomes the small group, the Bible studies. So, so the, the, the class em emphasis is mobilizing the individuals within that fellowship to reach specific communities, to go out, to go out into their neighborhoods, into their high schools or where their kids go to school, invest in particular ways, and they're talking about it, and it becomes the, the mechanism for for whatever we want to call it, for phalanx or whatever, however you want to do, it becomes the mechanism for evangelism in that context. We mobilize people through 
through the fellowships. And so we might have a fellowship, like Kenny's class is like 40 or 50 people in his class. But you might have five or six small groups in that class that have anywhere between five and ten people in them. And those small groups, they meet in particular places, in particular communities. They might meet in a neighborhood or whatever it is. And they are responsible. They become responsible for, for being a, a small, easy, mobile agent to reach a particular community. That's what they're given to do. This is where people uh, study God's word. They get together, they study the word, but they also reach the lost. And they invite people in to study God's word. And the small group is our, is our most mobile outreach function. Now, the, the fellowships are critical to discipleship in the following ways. This is why this is relevant to discipleship. When we pair people for discipleship, they're generally connected with people from within the fellowship context. Okay, so if they're involved in a smaller group of people, 40 or 50 people that know each other, they know each other's faces, they get to know each other, they're in small groups together, we usually use that as the space or the pool in which we pull their discipler out of and make the pairing. And so it works really well for them. It makes plugging people together really easy because there's already a natural structure for accountability, right? They, can already, they already see one another regularly. They already know one another. They're going to rub elbows a lot. And so it makes that accountability easier because they're going to see each other regularly. The next thing is fellowships provide a tangible and immediate relational ministry. So they have people that are their friends, right? It's their, this is like family. This is, this is the family within the family. The Bible studies are training grounds for leaders to cut their teeth and grow in their shepherding, okay? And I'm going to point this out a lot more tomorrow, tomorrow when I talk about pastors discipling leaders. But, but what we do is we make Bible study leaders up-and-coming leaders in our church. So guys that we, that we see, people that we see leadership skills in, and we see that they've been faithful, what we do is we make them Bible study leaders. That way, okay, listen to me, they have their own flock, Right? They've got four, five, ten people that they oversee, they counsel, they pour their life into, they converse with regularly, and they're learning to cut their teeth on pastoral leadership. It's, it's good for our men, it's also, it's also good for our women. But most importantly, fellowship small groups prioritize evangelism as a critical aspect of a disciple's identity. And this goes back to exactly what Brett and Eric are talking about. Because, look, we could do all this stuff. We could do the ministry. We could disciple in ministry context. We can give people space to play. We could do all these things. But if somewhere in our ministry, we're not leaving space for people to practice evangelism, then we are failing to disciple them. They are not disciples indeed, unless they are fishers of men. And it goes back to our introduction. All the things that God expected of the disciples, he expects that upon us. Those truths overlay our body, our congregation, OHBC, Decatur, Midtown, Wildwood, FBC, all of the churches. What God expected from his disciples, he expects that of our churches. We have to understand that. And so that leads us to this next key point. Discipleship requires a mechanism for fishing. You are not discipling your church. You're, you're not, your discipleship will not be perpetual. It will not be pervasive unless you provide a mechanism for regular and consistent fishing. People need to know that they aren't just children, children's workers. They are evangelists. And they don't get to focus on all of the inreach and investment and ministry to the exclusion of outreach. And so for us, that's fellowships and small groups. Those are the hubs by which we get that done. But for you, it might be something different. The point is, is this. We have to have a plan. We have to have a design. We have to look at the big picture. We have to work our way backwards. We have to come up with a plan so that every one of our ministers that's growing in the context of ministry also has a space to get discipled in the context of evangelism. They need to learn how to share the gospel. We have to work on that. That has to be a priority. When I came into uh, the college and young adult ministry, um, Dan left me with a really solid group of leaders. And, um, and I'm so thankful for that investment. And so it made it really easy for me. 
uh, to do what I did next. What I realized is that, that we needed to have a church planting view of Bible studies, that if we were going to reach our city in Kansas City, what we needed to do was to divide and conquer a lot. So I started pulling out men that had grown and women that had grown in their faith, and I started taking them and putting them in other parts of the city so that they could start new small groups, okay? When I first came into Kaya five years ago, <clears throat> um, there were, I believe, uh, between the international student Bible study focus and the, and the other Bible studies, there were six Bible studies maybe. And this year we're going to have 40. There'll be 40 Bible studies. Every Bible study is, is focused on learning God's word. Okay? They're growing in their ability, but they're focused on evangelism. And so Bible studies, they don't just meet for Bible study. On the off weeks, they go door to door in the neighborhoods. They go and they hang out in coffee shops together. Each one takes on its own focus. We've got a nerd Bible study, a group of guys that love like Magic the Gathering and stuff. Stuff I don't understand. Okay, I, just, I know that this game exists. I don't know anything about it. But they do things like that. And so on Fridays once a month, they go to comic book places and they hang out there and they meet people. As a Bible study, they go and they hang out and they play games and they get to know other nerds. And each Bible study... I've given the leaders liberty. How are you going to evangelize? How are you going to mobilize these people? How are you going to do this? And they take it upon themselves to put together a plan and a strategy, and they, play, they, they pray about it, and they devote themselves to going. When something doesn't work, they try something new. But it's that focus on evangelism that really has, that's where we've seen the growth. Because the Bible studies, they're excited. I mean, Leaders are excited. They talk about the day in which they can be a Bible study leader. And I'm watching and I'm waiting and, and I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait to the day that, that, that Kaya has 100 Bible studies. I can't wait. Because what that means to me is that the work of church planning will be that much more sustainable. And we'll have that many more leaders to just cut off and send away and transplant them somewhere else. We need a plan. And if you're walking through a discipleship life and you've got a philosophy of discipleship but you have no plan for expansion and you don't have, have no vision for tomorrow and you don't, you're not convinced that you're going to plant churches, guess what? This becomes a program and your church will be dead just like the church that I grew up in because it's an imbalance. We can't afford to let that happen. We have to have a plan. Okay, so I'm done. That's it. Tomorrow we'll talk about uh, pastoral discipleship. Okay, thanks. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.